Welcome to the Not Old Better Show Inside Science Interview Series on radio and podcast. I'm Paul Vogelzang, and today's show is brought to you by Kachava, Archives.com, and Elysium Health. Please check out our show notes today about each sponsor, and please support our sponsors as they in turn support the show. Peregrine falcons nesting on high-rise ledges, cougars prowling in yards, and seals lolling on urban beaches. These are now familiar sights to city dwellers and to those who follow them on social media. As environmental studies professor Peter S. Algana tells us today and explains from his new book, The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities, this relatively new phenomenon of thriving animal life in urban areas is more than an eye-catching curiosity or an example of society encroaching on nature. Instead, it's a whole new ecosystem, as Dr. Alagona will tell us today, and it's one that shows how animals and humans can live together peacefully, how species can adapt in extremely short time periods, and how we can start to right the ecological sins committed when urban sprawl first began. Peter Alagona will be reading a brief passage and description from his book in just a moment. But let me give you a quick message from one of our partners today, Kachava. Hey, it's Paul. I mentioned our sponsor today is Kachava, and I want to tell you all about Kachava, which is my all-in-one daily super blend. If you're worried you aren't getting all the nutrients you need or struggling to stay on top of your health, then listen up because Kachava has you covered. Kachava puts everything your body needs in one glass so you can have it all. All of us in the Not All Better Show audience know we need these superfoods as we age. We need all the vitamins, all the omegas, all the adaptogens, all the greens, all the protein, and all the benefits for your gut, for your skin, your hair, your brain, your muscles, and your heart, your whole health, especially as we age. No more compromise, no more guilt. No other nutrition shake does all this. The Kachava team traveled to the ends of the earth to source all the vitamins and crush it up. Kachava is a powder. You take two scoops, just add water, blend it up, and it tastes incredible. They have five delicious flavors. I really love the chocolate and vanilla, but chai is great too. And I've added it to my personal favorites. Look, I'm recording this first thing this morning and I've already had my kachava for breakfast. Yesterday I did the same and it kept me full for hours. There's just no way I could get all these nutrients with my normal diet. Again, as we age, dear Not Old Better Show audience, we need this special blend of nutrients. Trying to manage all the supplements and ingredients you should be taking, it's overwhelming and expensive. But now, Kachava makes clean, organic, superfood nutrition accessible to everyone. Listen, I'll tell you, I'm loving Kachava, and you've got to go try Kachava for yourself. And right now, for a limited time, Kachava is offering 10% off to our Not Old Better Show audience. Go to kachava.com slash better. That's Kachava, spelled K-A-C-H-A-V-A dot com slash better. All this will be in our show notes. But go to kachava.com and get 10% off your first order. That's kachava.com slash better. Thanks, everybody. I've asked our guest, Peter Alagona, to introduce his reading selection today for us. Dr. Alagona. Okay, thanks so much, Paul. Um, 
So the, the passage that I'd like to read actually comes toward the very end of the book when I'm sort of reflecting on the stories that I've told and uh, on a particular uh, episode that happened to me early in the pandemic when a friend of mine called me up and said that she had found something that she thought would be of great interest to me and that I should come down to a nearby park in the town where I live and meet her. And so this is describing what happened when I, when I got there and what I found that, or what she had found to, to show me, it was a bird's nest. And so I'm going to describe it to you now. And I think it says um, a lot about urban ecosystems and the creatures with which we, we increasingly share them today. So the next day, this is the day after I um, found this nest, I sat down at my kitchen table to catalog the materials the nest contained. There were needles from Italian stone pines, fibers from the trunks of Canary Island date palms, and twigs from Australian eucalyptus trees, as well as lichens, feathers, and grasses from native species or species native to Europe and Asia. The nest also contained brown wool, blue string, and yarn in purple, orange, yellow, white, and black. I found scraps of napkins and paper towels, along with several cigarette butts, which may have antimicrobial properties that may deter some nest parasites. There was aluminum foil and a swatch of gray stitched nylon that looked like it had once been part of a tent. There were half a dozen straw sleeves, both paper and plastic, and the kind of synthetic filling used to stuff pillows. The tinsel was a nice touch. When it finally dawned on me, I was glad to be sitting down. This gorgeous nest, this postmodern collage in the form of a cradle said more about urban ecosystems and wildlife than the book I'd been writing for the previous five years. Yes, this book. Judging by the nest size, shape, and location, its most likely architect was an American robin. Robins are North America's fourth most common bird after red-winged blackbirds, European starlings, and house finches. Because robins subsist on a diverse omnivorous diet, can live in almost any region with woods and fields, and seem at home around people, they're well-suited for city life. Since robins consume large numbers of ground-dwelling invertebrates like earthworms, some scientists also consider them useful indicators of soil and water quality. Yet despite these admirable traits and the nursery rhyme that helped make them famous, little robin redbreast sat upon a rail, niddle nubble when its head, wiggle waggle when its tail, robins don't get much respect. Even their Latin name, Turtus migratorius, seems a little passive-aggressive. Yet to behold an urban robin's nest, its design, its structure, its function, its whimsy, is to be reminded that in nature nothing goes to waste. It is also to be reminded that some human-made waste may never completely disappear. Robins may be building nests with our garbage long after Homo sapiens have gone the way of the dodo. That, of course, is our guest today, Peter Alagona, reading a passage from his new book, The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities. Let's jump in and meet historian of science, conservation scientist, and nature, culture, geography, Peter Alagana, our guest today. Fantastic. Thank you. Yeah. Brilliant. I, I just, you know, it's amazing what the birds use and just this idea that cigarette butts can have antimicrobial property. These birds are just smart and they just use what's at hand and um, make do and... It serves them well. Well, you know, cigarette butts in particular, I mean, that's a form of toxic waste in a way, seen from a particular perspective. <laughs> yeah. But seen from the perspective of a robin building a nest uh, and, you know, trying to provide a, a safe and clean home for its young, for its chicks, I think things look a little bit different. 
And so understanding and appreciating urban wildlife like robins, but also a range of other species that we, we live with now in many of our cities in the U.S. and elsewhere, I think requires changing our perspective a little bit and starting to see the world maybe a little bit more through their eyes. Our guest today is Dr. Peter Alagona. Your new book, though, is wonderful, and we're going to refer to that very specifically, The Accidental Ecosystem, People, and Wildlife in American Cities. You've sent it to me. I've had a chance to read it. You just now have read a section from it. It's it's wonderful. I've really enjoyed it. The title caught my attention, Accidental Ecosystem. What's led to these accidental ecosystems in the United States of late? Well, I think that when most of your listeners think about cities, and frankly, when most of the great thinkers, philosophers um, in the Western philosophical tradition, including thinkers about uh, urban environments and cities, uh, have thought about these you know, urban spaces over the course of, of decades or centuries of millennia, they thought about cities really as places just for people. But over the last really since World War II, so about over the last kind of human lifetime, maybe 75 years or so, wildlife has been increasing in number and in diversity in cities throughout the U.S. and uh, also throughout some other parts of the world like Europe and parts of East Asia. This was not something that people really set out to do, at least kind of until very recently. Uh, But these creatures showed up for the first time or in some cases returned after long periods of an absence in large part for for reasons that people didn't intend, uh, due to decisions people had made decades ago and often for other reasons. So let me give you just an example of that. In the 18th and early 19th centuries, cities in the United States had very few trees. There were were, uh, very few parks, public parks. Streets didn't generally have trees lining them. Municipalities didn't think it was their job to plant trees. Uh, And as a matter of fact, insurance companies in many regions would not uh, insure buildings that were next to trees because trees were considered a fire hazard in those cities. It was only in the late 19th and early 20th centuries that people started to recognize that trees provided a range of of social benefits for uh, everything from energy conservation to human health and well-being. And so people started planting trees all over the place. Trees weren't planted to attract squirrels, and they weren't planted really even to attract birds. But over the years, they did. They attracted a wide range of creatures that could start to live to make homes in urban spaces because urban spaces had become increasingly forested. But the reasons they had become forested were that people planted them largely for human reasons, for human welfare. And so this is a story that I think speaks to this idea of the accidental ecosystem. We've created these rich pockets of wildlife habitat in our cities that now attract all sorts of creatures that we never really intended to. But now that they're there, we're learning interesting things about them. We're trying to live with them and we're trying to figure out ways to coexist in these these weird places that we now think of as multi-species communities or urban ecosystems. One of the animals that you talk about in the book, one of the creatures are coyotes. And and you – I – I love animals. You have this this great admiration for coyotes as being, you know, they, they possess grit and, and adaptability. I thought there was a really interesting story about coyotes and what happened with coyotes as cities began these efforts to eliminate coyotes from, from towns and cities across the U.S. I wonder if you'd tell us that. Yeah, coyotes are one of the most remarkable creatures, I think, on our continent um, in many ways. 
their their native range, their ancestral uh, range, dating back you know a couple hundred years, two or three hundred years, was really only in the Great Plains and Southwest, from Southern California in into the uh, Southern Great Plains, and so this was the area where coyotes lived. And once you know, basically European Americans started to expand uh, across the continent to the west coast of the U.S they launched a campaign of persecution to try to control or even eradicate coyotes from vast areas of their, of their home range. Uh, in a way we've, you know, we've launched a campaign of persecution against coyotes. That's almost unequaled in the history of human relations with wildlife, even globally in a way, but how did coyotes respond to this? Well, they didn't respond by going extinct or by disappearing. They responded by expanding their range to every corner of North America. They now live in every U.S. state except Hawaii. They live uh, throughout Canada, um, throughout the country. They live all the way now into uh, Central America, into the tropics uh, of Central America, Southern Mexico, and beyond. And so these are remarkable creatures that have also found their way into urban areas. The city of Coyote, or the city of Coyote, should be called the city of Coyote, the city of Chicago uh, now has something like between two and 4,000 coyotes in it, if you can believe that. Coyotes have always lived in Los Angeles, but now they live in places like New Orleans and New York and even Miami, places where you'd never seen them before. And so this success, this remarkable expansion and success of coyotes speaks to their adaptability, uh, their grit, their ability to survive in different places, even when people are persecuting them, uh, even when people are misconstruing what they're doing out there in these ecosystems. Coyotes are in a way a flagship species for urban environments, uh, but they're also a species that I think deserves a lot more respect from a lot of us, uh, in part because they're able to, to do so well in so many different places and they're able to live with us usually with very few problems. You also talk about squirrels and black bears, foxes, even pumas, which I thought was really kind of interesting, one that it jumped out at me and surprised me a little bit. But I wonder if you tell us how are animals adapting to city life, you know, in the concrete jungle? Because, <laughs> I mean, that's really what they are having to kind of deal with. They're joining us. And I wonder if you – maybe kind of a two-part question, if you tell us a little bit about how we're balancing you know, wildlife with, you know, human population in these cities? Yeah, sure. So if we want to think just about how wild creatures survive in cities or what kinds of creatures are most likely to do well in cities uh, these days, at least, I think we can kind of divide uh, wild creatures up into to three broad groups. And these are not, you know, these are not rigid categories. There's a lot of nuance here. So please keep that in mind. But there are three general kinds of creatures um, whose Habitat preferences have something to do with urban spaces. And so one group of creatures are termed the urban exploiters. Exploiters. And so the urban exploiters are creatures that do really well in urban environments. They do well around lots of people. Sometimes they're found on farms and ranches, but they're rarely found in wild environments like wilderness areas or, or, or uh, national parks outside of the developed campgrounds and these sorts of things. So urban exploiters include, you know, crows, pigeons, rats, uh, uh, some species of squirrels, animals that are very common in a lot of different cities. You see them a lot of different places you go. They do really well. Then there is a group called the urban adapters. The urban adapters are creatures that can do well in urban areas, but often they require some natural areas nearby or some, some green spaces that they can retreat to 
uh, during the day or when they're under different kinds of pressure. And so this includes um, a variety of birds like raptors, like hawks, and in some cases even eagles, maybe owls in some cases. It includes uh, many wading birds like herons and egrets that we may be familiar with. It also includes a large group of kind of medium-sized uh, mammals like skunks and foxes and raccoons uh, and even coyotes are included in that group, urban adapters. So they can do well in urban areas, but they often require a little bit of, of green space too. And then there are the urban avoiders. And these are creatures that tend to not do well in urban areas for a bunch of different reasons, often because they're too big, they require large home ranges, they would have to travel across dangerous areas. They just don't don't particularly do well, and they tend to avoid those areas. And those include creatures like pumas or grizzly bears or wolverines. Uh, even some of those are showing up in urban spaces and causing a lot of concern in some areas where they do today. So in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, for example, they're seeing more grizzly bears uh, in the area and trying to figure out how to coexist with these animals so that people don't get hurt and, and bears don't die. But if we look at the, at the reasons that some animals do really well in urban areas, the reasons are, are often things that may be familiar to us. And so they're often creatures that are able to live among large numbers of their own kind. So in large flocks or groups. They're often animals that um, like to experiment with things, try new things, so they're not stuck in rigid behaviors. Uh, and so they try new things, and that means they can sometimes tap new resources when new resources arise, which they sometimes do in urban areas. These creatures uh, tend to care for their young, and that's one of the ways in which they, they pass on this kind of cultural knowledge. Uh, they also tend to be omnivores. <laughs> omnivores do quite well oftentimes in urban areas compared to uh, strict herbivores or particularly compared to strict carnivores. And so if we think about animals that live well among large numbers of their own kind, that are uh, into experimentation, that care for their young, that are omnivorous. Paul, who does that sound like? Sounds like us. And I know that your listeners don't want to be, they're not listening to your show so that they can hear some professor compare them to rats. But it, it, you know, it's not surprising that we use rats as model organisms in biomedical research. So there are ways in which animals like rats have some of the same basic ecological properties that allow them to do well in urban areas as some other creatures that do well in urban areas, including the ones that created those habitats themselves, us. We'll be right back with Dr. Peter Alagana, but I want to mention our sponsor, archives.com. Uncovering your family's history is simple and affordable at archives.com. Their tools are easy to use, but behind the scenes, powerful technology delivers valuable results. Archives.com is your one-stop shop for access to more than 11 billion records essential to family history. They have birth, marriage, and death certificates, as well as census and military records, newspapers, photos, and family trees. You can also take advantage of their online collection of 20,000 rare volumes of family and local history books. These unique records, paired with their other extensive collections, help you connect with your ancestors. They forge strong partnerships to bring you exclusive content and are constantly adding new records to their collections to make new discoveries possible. Find out why family historians trust Archives.com to make family history easy and 
intuitive. Start a free trial today and see what's available at archives.com. They'll put family history at your fingertips. Do you know what NAD is? I didn't before. And trust me, you're going to want to hear this. NAD is found in every single cell of your body. It's responsible for creating energy and regulating hundreds of cell functions. But NAD declines as you age. Lack of sleep, intense exercise, or too much sun can also deplete NAD levels. And decreased NAD levels are linked to faster biological aging. It can even slow down vital body functions. I mentioned earlier that Elysium Health is the sponsor of this episode. Now, You know that I am hypercritical of any supplements I put into my body. I do a ton of my own research. And what I appreciate about Elysium is how transparent they are about their research and evidence. This is a company that has dozens of the world's best scientists working with them. Seven of them have won a Nobel Prize. If you're like me and you've thought about the changes occurring in your body as you age, such as the feeling of general tiredness and fatigue that sets in, a change in your metabolism, or a longer workout recovery time, then you should consider Elysium's product, Basis. Basis is an NAD supplement that is clinically proven to increase levels of NAD by 40%. NAD helps our cells create energy. Basis has become my secret weapon to support the aging process. Basis by Elysium Health is a game changer, and it's a cornerstone of my daily routine, but you need to try it for yourself to experience the results. Here's what I want you to do. Go to trybasis.com slash notoldbetter, and when you enter our code notoldbetter at checkout, you'll save 10% off Basis prepaid plans as well as other Elysium Health supplements. That's trybasis.com slash notoldbetter. All of this will be in our show notes today. And be sure to use our code notoldbetter at checkout to save 10%. Thank you to Elysium Health for sponsoring this episode. Fascinating stuff. We are with Dr. Peter Alagona. Dr. Alagona has written the new book, The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities. I have really enjoyed this book, Dr. Algona, and I want to I want to talk for a second about about the COVID lockdown because you know you think back to that time, you know March and April of 2020, some of those early days, there were lots of sightings. You know, we looked out the window a lot. We were kind of in lockdown, and so we had some time to do that, and we saw these creatures were you know wandering around more. At least that was our perception. And I don't know, maybe they were maybe they were there before. But I wonder if you'd talk for a second about what did COVID do to this migration perhaps or just the appearance and what did it do to the creatures' birth rates um, to their own populations? What does the kind of data show now and how did how did all of that influence your writing of the book? Oh, man, that's an amazing question, Paul, and there's so many different uh, angles to it. I'll just say um, for your listeners that um, I actually published an op-ed about this topic in the LA Times back in April, and uh, Emily uh, Antis uh, published an article about this, a more in-depth article in the New York Times just a week or so ago. Uh, so if, you're, um, if your listeners are interested in that, they can kind of read up uh, in some of those sources. But Yeah, yeah. Uh, but, you know, at the at the beginning of the pandemic, there were all of these sightings of, of wildlife in areas. 
And actually, I, this gained a lot of traction. It was covered uh, in through news outlets, you know, all over the world. David Attenborough uh, produced uh, a documentary through the BBC called The Your Earth Changed, um, looking at this and using this as a story of potential uh, hope for how people can maybe change their their actions a little bit in a way that makes more space for for wild creatures and for nature. But now we're two and a half years later, and we have a little bit more of a vantage point on this. And I think the story is actually quite mixed. And I'll just give you a few examples of this. So uh, one example is that it, it appears from uh, retrospective research looking at the wildlife sightings from early in the pandemic, you know, in March and April of 2020, that the increased wildlife sightings in urban areas were less a function of, in most cases, most cases, less a function of increased wildlife activity or numbers, and more a function of people stuck at home staring out their windows looking at things that they hadn't bothered to look at before. And so this is really more of a shift in human behavior than it is in animal behavior. But that in itself is interesting. I mean, when you stop and take a deep breath and you look around, you start to see things and it actually enriches your life. And so I think that there's a lesson that we can take with us in our daily lives from that. In terms of the animals themselves, uh, a lot of creatures experienced a lot of different uh, effects of this. So some were, were in fact able to wander more widely and forage more widely in certain areas. Uh, some came out in areas where people had, had uh, kind of dominated before the hustle and bustle of cities uh, and, and kind of wandered around more and, and uh, were able to, to maybe find new mates or tap new resources. We have some uh, interesting data showing that uh, things like roadkill, for example, declined dramatically early in the pandemic, but then rose again later on in some areas. So threats to wildlife. We also have some data showing that uh, in some cases, changes in the springtime environment of 2020 had knock-on effects for some species. So it appears that some uh, insect-eating birds may have benefited from a decline in air pollution early in the pandemic that led to a boom, perhaps, maybe, in some insect populations that then allowed them to fatten up and produce more eggs, a larger clutch of eggs later in the spring. So this is... These are still kind of theoretical, but they're based on some empirical studies. But then later on, uh, it became apparent too that this wasn't just about what wild creatures were doing, but about what conservationists were doing. And so conservation organizations took uh, and efforts took a really big hit during the pandemic. Uh, funding briefly dried up. Uh, certain organizations had to curtail their activities. Uh, poaching uh, may have increased, deforestation in some areas increased uh, during the pandemic. And so unfortunately, this, this story uh, that we've heard uh, from, from the BBC and, and from others early in the pandemic that, you know, this anthropause, which is another word for that brief pause uh, during that period that some folks have used, uh, was a boom for wildlife, actually turns out to have been much more of a mixed bag and a, and a really complicated story that I think we're going to be trying to sort out for a long time. Uh-huh, yeah. And so one of the other interesting things to be sorted out, apparently, is this idea of pest control and the corporate interests behind it, because this has really altered how we view animals' place in the cities. You know, can people coexist with animals as they move closer in, because you say in the book, coexistence is about care, not control. I love that. So please 
distinguish the two for us. Disease affects uh, urban environments, rats living in tight spaces, diseases circulating among animals. They, they're safer in more diverse ecosystems. For example, bats and the biology of bats. They harbor more pathogens um, without getting sick themselves. Really fascinating stuff. So people destroy or harass these habitats. Uh, bats eat insects that have been uh, you know, insecticides have been used on them, uh, including pesky, nasty mosquitoes. Uh, bats provide protection, yet we seek to mess around with them. There are rodent poisons that are used all the time. Rats are dirty. Um, they get into our food. Um, we use these terrible blood thinners that are really toxic in the environment. Pumas eat the rats, and there's just this spiral that affects. All of these questions, I think, start with this idea of pest control. So maybe go there for a second with us and talk to us a little bit about all of these questions. Yeah, this is a, a great set of questions, I think. And I'll let me focus on the, the disease environment part first, and then maybe loop back around to what this means in a larger sense. Uh, I, I think that, you know, one of the things that the pandemic did is it, it alerted people to the fact that we are animals and we are connected to other animals in, in a lot of different ways. Um, that quickly became kind of obscured by the way that we think about disease um, in the Western world and particularly the United States as being something that's taken care of in hospitals. That's about individuals. Uh, but disease ecology is the field uh, in which we try to understand how diseases circulate in ecosystems including ecosystems that people participate in. COVID is a zoonotic disease. It is almost certain that it came from bats in uh, horseshoe bats uh, in Southeast Asia um, and then spilled over into humans, perhaps through an intermediate host. Genomic research from the very beginning of the pandemic has showed that pretty consistently and built a very solid case for that. That may cause some folks to say, wait a minute, we should be worried about bats. We should be worried about creatures that are close to us, including a variety of animals that in, uh, inhabit urban environments in terms of their disease risk that they present to us. And it is true that living in close contact with a lot of different animals presents you with certain disease risks. But it is also true that by reducing biological diversity, by destroying habitats, by transforming and altering the climate, human beings are causing ecological disarray around the world in ways that simplify ecosystems, and stir up germs, creating new pathways for those pathogens, those germs to infect people. And so human health and well-being, I think COVID is a, is a great example of this, even though a lot of people haven't heard of it described in this way. Human health and well-being is very much tied to the health of ecosystems and intact uh, and healthy wildlife populations. When we degrade habitat, when we uh, exploit wildlife, when we move animals around, we increase the risks to us uh, of acquiring diseases that otherwise would just remain in ecosystems and not be much of a threat to us. We also increase the risk to people, uh, to children in particular, and also to pets and domesticated animals uh, when we go out and try to just eliminate uh, the creatures that are in our communities by poisoning them anticoagulant rodenticides, which are the primary means by which um, uh, rodents are, are controlled and poisoned uh, in this country and elsewhere, 
uh, are really toxic. They're blood thinners. They lead to a really gruesome death for those animals. Uh, it cannot be called humane in, really in any way. Um, but also those poisons work their way up through, through the food web. They infect animals uh, that we don't want to harm at all, uh, including birds, including uh, uh, predatory mammals. And one of the worst parts of this is that some of the very creatures that are out there controlling the rodents, like bobcats, for example, are the ones that end up getting poisoned by the poisons that we intend for the rodents themselves. And so we're kind of locked into this, this cycle of thinking that the solution to risks in the environment is to control it. And so what I mean when I talk about care and control in the book is that whether we're talking about, you know, conservation in rural areas or whether we're talking about pest control in urban areas, um, uh, an ethic of, of domination and control has really infused those things for a very long time. And I think that we increasingly see now that control of nature is not, not really possible. And that actually, in some ways, it can expose us to even greater risks. And so what we need to do, I would argue, and I argue in this book, is to not think of ourselves as, you know, engaging just in control of nature in cities, but thinking of cities as shared habitats, as multi-species communities, and trying to think about, you know, what are the ways that we can improve health and well-being for a variety of species, including ourselves. Maybe one of those ways is to say, what are the creatures that we want more of in our environment? And what are the ones we want less of? Maybe we want owls and fewer rats. That's something we can do, right? We can design urban spaces so that we achieve those goals and those goals work well together. But we need to start thinking about these spaces as shared habitats if we want to actually do so. And when we start thinking of these shared habitats and these spaces, you're very upbeat about this. And, and I wonder – you know, many of my audience might might be worried. They might be thinking, isn't it dangerous to have coyotes walking around urban parks? We can make these choices, absolutely. But you, you actually do have some success stories that uh, you cite in the book. Maybe tell us one or two of those. So I want to just make a, a point about um, urban, urban predators and urban carnivores, particular coyotes, because they're kind of the flagship for this, but others too. You know, what any wildlife scientists who's been studying this for a long time will tell you is that just seeing an animal like a coyote in an urban area is not a reason for concern. A reason for concern would be if they're acting unusually, if they're acting boldly or aggressively, or if they seem uh, sick or injured. You know, that is a, is a situation that can pose a potential problem. And then in that case, we should be calling animal control to think about what to do under that, under that circumstance. But just seeing a coyote isn't a bad thing. And as a matter of fact, that coyote is out there, you know, eating many of the same, uh, you know, animals that most of us think of as pests in urban environments, gophers, rats, all those other kinds of creatures that we'd like to see fewer of. And so if our only reaction to seeing a coyote in an urban space is to think it should be either uh, moved out to the countryside or, or killed, then we're actually defeating, um, you know, the purpose of many of our other goals in urban spaces, which are to, to provide healthy, uh, healthy spaces, freer of pests for our homes, for our pets, for our children, for our gardens, et cetera. And so we can think of these animals, uh, as helpers in some ways. One of the challenges with that though, is I think media coverage, to be honest, uh, the media tends to cover, um, adverse incidents. 
So if there's an, uh, an attack, let's say a coyote, you know, attacks a dog or something like that, or a cat that gets covered in the newspaper. What doesn't get covered is the other 10,000 times that somebody saw a coyote, nothing bad happened. And then that coyote went on to kill, you know, 10 rats in the next week. And so that that's not news. That's not newsworthy. But we need to start thinking more critically about that if we want to have healthier urban habitats and ecosystems. In many cities where coyote populations have showed up and increased in recent years, in areas where people, where an education program has, uh, and also a law enforcement program, has convinced people not to do um, bad things like feeding coyotes, you know, uh, or providing them with access to, to human garbage, uh, then, you know, we can live, we can coexist with these animals. And in many of these, these areas where people are abiding by these simple rules of coexistence, uh, we see, you know, significant numbers of urban predators. We see in some cases, reduced numbers of pests and we see very few adverse, uh, incidents. And so, you know, that's, that's really the goal is to try to achieve coexistence, um, through education, uh, through research, you know, occasionally, if we need to, through some enforcement, you know, if somebody needs to be written a ticket for feeding a coyote, um, you know, then that can happen too. Uh, but, but overall, to try to, to try to create this environment of coexistence that maximizes the benefits of living with wildlife and minimizes the risks. Thank you for that, Dr. Peter Algona. Uh, I just, I really have just one final question for you. We really appreciate your time today, and and I just would like to know for my audience. What are some of the next steps? You know, when we think about coexistence, when we think about education, everything that you've provided in the book and in our wonderful conversation today, how should we go about supporting and and living with urban wildlife? It, you know, coexistence brings with it this idea of cooperation and and perhaps even a moral responsibility to these animals that are kind of moving back into cities. What does that responsibility look like in action? So, in the book, what I make a pitch for is moving from the accidental ecosystem, which is the title of the book, and how I think we kind of got mostly to the place we're at now, to a more intentional urban ecosystem. What would a more intentional urban ecosystem look like? It'll be one where we were actually thinking of cities as ecosystems. We were thinking of them as multi-species communities and habitats. And we were trying to envision what kinds of habitats we want to live in and with which kinds of creatures we want to share them in the future. And so you say that I'm, I'm upbeat, and I think in a way I try to be uh, upbeat in, part in response to some folks who have been more critical of this situation. But I do think we can be more intentional about this. And I think that there are two levels on which that can happen. One is largely the level of, of local government. All across the United States, counties produce general plans. The general plans have different elements, education, transportation, flood control, um, housing, all of these different elements that are required in county general plans. There's not a wildlife component uh, included in these general plans in most cases. In some cases there is, but in most cases there isn't. But thinking about wild creatures which move around and experience all of these things, transportation, uh, flooded areas or, or creeks, you know, all of these different spaces that wild creatures inhabit, that's one way through those general plans to start uh, thinking on a local level in a, in a collaborative uh, and coherent way about urban ecosystems, the kinds of places we really want to live, the kinds of habitats that we want to inhabit. That's one thing. But then there's the level of the individual. And what I would say to folks listening 
is if you really want to make a difference, if you want to become um, a wildlife manager, you can do that right now. And the way that you can become a wildlife scientist and manager is to start looking around, observing things, educating yourself, and then making decisions, individual decisions, based on the kind of habitat you want to live in. What kinds of plants do you want to plant around your, around your home? How fast are you driving <laughs> on city streets? You know, do you have a bird feeder? You know, what, how do you manage that? How do you think about that? The different species you're bringing in uh, and the ones you're repelling. All of these little things that we do, you know, how do you throw out your trash? How do you store it? Do, do creatures get into it? Uh, all of these little things that we do make a difference and they shape the habitat and the kinds of wildlife populations that are around us. And so I think that we can work together at the level of our local communities, but we can also do individual things to move from this accidental ecosystem to a more intentional one that's healthier for all of us. Thank you so much, Dr. Peter Halagona has been our guest. This is just a wonderful book. Again, the title of the book is The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities. It's a whole new ecosystem, and, and we, we really can live very peacefully with animals and uh, enjoy uh, this experience, but, but do it right. The book spells this all out. Dr. Peter Alagona, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for this research, and um, we'd love to have you back, too. I know our audience is going to be very interested in this subject, but as you do more research on this subject, as you um, learn more, expand uh, your own website, which we will put links up to, please come back and join us. Tell us what you're up to. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been a pleasure. My thanks today to our sponsors, Kachava, Archives.com, and Elysium Health. Please check out our show notes for more information about our sponsors and please support our sponsors because they in turn support the show. My thanks, of course, to Dr. Alagona, author of the new book, The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities. You can find out more about Dr. Alagona and his work in the show notes today. Please be well and be safe. I'm saying this to you regularly of late about being safe, and that is to be safe by eliminating assault rifles. We don't need them in the hands of non-military, and they are killing our children and grandchildren in the very places they learn, school. So please, be safe, be well. Let's talk about better. We can do better. The Not Old Better Show on radio and podcast. Thanks, everybody, and I'll see you next time. 